Hi, this is Doug Henwood. My February 7, 2008 show was part of a fundraising marathon for WBAI, the station from which this show originates. Much of the time was taken up by appeals for support, which I doubt web listeners would want to endure. The substantive content of the show, however, was this 38-minute interview with Noam Chomsky recorded just a few days before the broadcast. Web and podcast listeners won't completely escape the fundraising appeals, though. If you like this show and hope it continues to be produced, please consider giving some money to WBAI. You can pledge securely on the web by visiting WBAI.org. That's WBAI.org. We're almost entirely listener-sponsored, so no pledges, no station. Okay, enough begging. Here's Noam Chomsky, who really needs no introduction. Thanks for joining us, Noam. How did you go from being a very distinguished linguist into uh, being a very prominent political activist? Well, the actual course in my own life happens to be in the opposite direction. I was a political activist uh, long before I ever knew that there was such a subject as linguistics. Uh, in fact, my first uh, political article was uh, in fourth grade. I was the editor and probably the only reader of the fourth grade newspaper. And in 1939, I wrote an article uh, on the fall of Barcelona and the rise of fascism in Europe, uh, Austria, Czechoslovakia, now Spain and its ominous consequences. Uh, it's, I wouldn't submit it for publication today if I had it. Uh, but anyway, that was what I grew up with. I was about to become a college dropout at age 17. It was too boring. But I happened to meet, uh, through political contacts, uh, Zelik Harris, one of the most important linguists in the country. And he kind of vested uh, to me that I start taking some of his graduate courses, and I gradually started taking other graduate courses and other fields and sort of got back into the academic world by a back route, but without any particular credentials, I should say. One of the reasons I'm teaching at MIT. Did you grow up in a political milieu? Oh, yeah. This was the 1930s. I mean, there was almost nothing else. And my parents were pretty standard Roosevelt Democrats, but... Uh, uh, my uh, relatives, uh, many of them were uh, working class, mostly unemployed, seamstresses, uh, newsstand operator, uh, shop boys, and things, things like that. So, and very, very politically active in the Communist Party and other political organizations. Uh, very uh, uh, in unions, of course, and involved in union struggles and a very uh, intense uh, uh, political environment. But by the time I was about Twelve, you know, old enough to make it to New York by myself on the train. We lived in Philadelphia. I'd take off weekends and stay with relatives and uh, you know, spend my time uh, in anarchist bookstores or Fourth Avenue, they used to be, or in the Freie uh, Arbeiterstimme anarchist office in Union Square and places like that. And it just went on. I, actually, my main political involvements, I should say, were what were in those days called Zionists. They would nowadays be called anti-Zionist because Zionism has changed, uh, namely uh, involvement in the development of uh, in what was happening in what was in Palestine, but uh, committed to a binational state based on Arab-Jewish uh, working-class cooperation in a socialist uh, Palestine, which is not as uh, outlandish as it may sound today, if you look back at the time. So did things change for Zionism when Zionism got a state? changed as soon as the state was established in 1948. The question of binationalism became moot. However, it opened again in 1967. And in fact, from 67 to 19, mid-1970s, 
I think was a live option, and I was writing about it at the time, eliciting a tremendous uh, outrage and horror. Uh, but I think it was uh, quite possible Israel could at that time have moved towards some kind of federation in uh, Cisjordan, uh, the area from Jordan to the sea, mainly, mainly Palestinian, mainly Jewish entity entities, and then moving towards closer integration and cooperation as circumstances allowed. I think that would have been better for everyone involved. But it was uh, it was total anathema at the time when it, because pro- probably because it was feasible uh, by the mid 70s uh, that was gone. Palestinian nationalism became recognized, and the uh, the world outside the United States and Israel came to a general consensus, a very broad international consensus, that uh, the solution should be a two-state settlement on the international border, uh, the pre-June 67 border with uh, guarantees for the uh, security, uh, for the right to exist in peace and security of every state in the region, including Israel and a new Palestinian state. I I came to the Security Council of the United Nations in uh, January 1976. It was brought by the main Arab states with the support of the PLO, and the U.S. vetoed it. It's worth remembering that a U.S. veto is, is, in effect, a double veto. First of all, it's barred. And second of all, it's excluded from history. So you have to look hard to find it. And that's been true of most of the subsequent history. So from then until today, the only short-term viable solution is the international consensus that by now is rejected uh, only by the United States and Israel, maybe some marginal groups elsewhere. And it's supported by the American population, but as in many other issues, uh, popular opinion doesn't matter much doesn't relate to policy. It could be looked at, and I personally would look at it as a first step, a stage towards developments which, in my view, would be more beneficial to everyone involved, but you know, that's for the people involved to determine. I was just paging through the New Press's uh, collection, The Essential Chomsky, which will be uh, out imminently, uh, and was reading The Responsibility of the Intellectuals. Uh, have the intellectuals changed their behavior over the last 40 years? Are they still pretty much uh, behaving as they were uh, during the Vietnam days? Well, would you mind changing that from 40 to 2,500? I mean, what it, it's the traditional stance of intellectuals right through history. The traditional stance of intellectuals is uh, support for power, subordination to power. It's what uh, Hans Morgenthau, the founder of realist international relations theory, once called uh, our conformist subservience to those in power, not unrealistically. And that goes back to the earliest history, since history is written by intellectuals, obviously, so they come out looking pretty good, not surprisingly. But when you look at the actual record, uh, it is primarily a record of uh, conformist subservience to those in power. Uh, there are very few exceptions. There are some exceptions, like in the contemporary world. Actually, the leading exception that I know is uh, Turkey. In Turkey, uh, much to its credit, prominent uh, intellectuals, uh, writers, artists, uh, academics, journalists, and others, not only vigorously protest uh, repression and violence and uh, draconian laws, but are engaged in constant civil disobedience about it and are facing and sometimes enduring pretty harsh punishment. Uh, that's unknown in the West. I have, I have to laugh when I'm in Europe and I listen to them talking about how Turkey isn't able to rise to their elevated standards. Actually, Turkey can teach them quite a few lessons us too. But that's unusual. It's rare for the uh, a central 
prominent part of the intellectual class to take a principled stand in opposition to state power or any other kind. I'm interested in talking about, uh, well, now that we're in the waning days of the Bush administration, uh, evaluating what the, the Bush administration meant for U.S. foreign policy, uh, how similar and how different. Uh, I think a lot of people are looking to uh, a new president uh, to transform uh, the uh, nature of U.S. relations with the uh, rest of the world. How much of an aberration was the Bush administration, in your judgment? It was an aberration. Actually, I remember reading an article by uh, Gabriel Kalko, wonderful historian and political analyst, must have been 2000, in which everyone surprised. He said he hoped that Bush would win. And the reason he hoped that Bush would win is that he said it would drive uh, the United States into such disasters that it would lose its capacity to uh, dominate the world with uh, violence and repression. I was surprised then, but that's pretty much what happened. Uh, The Bush administration has been almost a... a colossal failure in everything it's tried, domestically and internationally, with a few exceptions. I mean, it has succeeded in putting uh, plenty of dollars into the pockets of its rich friends, which was one of its two major goals. Uh, the other, and that's, uh, you read the budget proposal that just appeared, it's an effort to continue that, so make the tax cuts permanent, and that means basically pretty much tax cuts for the rich, and cut down on uh, Medicaid and Medicare, which serve the poor and those who are outside the very wealthy circles, which can purchase, who can purchase health care for themselves. And that's a typical Bush domestic policy. Internationally, the other phase of its policy was to try to you know, shake its fist at the world and intimidate everyone and make them accept uh, uh, the U.S. right to use force wherever it wanted and achieve its goals as it chose. And that backfired. I mean, they've severely uh, harmed uh, the interests that they represent. In fact, the Bush administration has come under unprecedented criticism uh, right from the early days, from right within the mainstream. I mean, it's very rare that you get uh, a harsh critique of, uh, of, the, of uh, the administration, especially a conservative administration, from the journals like, say, Foreign, Foreign Affairs. Uh, right after the famous Bush Doctrine was announced uh, November 2002, uh, within weeks, Foreign Affairs had a, a harshly critical article by their standards, a harshly critical article uh, by John Eikenberry, well-known political analyst, uh, 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 criticism of what he called the, the new imperial grand strategy of the Bush administration, uh, which he predicted was going to lead to problems for for. Uh, U.S. elite interests, as it did. And the same was true in foreign policy and elsewhere. American Academy of Arts and Sciences also had an unprecedented critique, and that's continued. They are kind of either off the spectrum or at the very edge of the spectrum. On the other hand, we should bear in mind that the spectrum is pretty narrow. So take, say, the Bush Doctrine, which granted the U.S. the right to use force in what it called the self-defense, preemptive self-defense. I mean, let's look at the Clinton Doctrine. It wasn't presented brazenly the way Bush did, but it was there. Uh, and it called for the, explicitly, for the right of the United States to resort to force, uh, to protect uh, markets and resources. Well, you take that literally, it's more extreme than the Bush Doctrine. Uh, it didn't even require making up a pretext. Somebody 
interferes with our markets and resources, okay, we use force to uh, control them, get them out. Uh, that's the Clinton doctrine. And in fact, it goes back as far back as you want to go. I mean, until the Second World War, the United States was not really a global power. It was secondary to England and, in fact, others in that respect. But since the Second World War, that's been pretty pretty much uh, accepted without, in fact, even formulated. I go back to the wartime planning. Wartime planning explicitly called for the United States to be the dominant world power and to ensure uh, that its own sovereignty is never threatened and that no other state or collection of states would be able to challenge that uh, dominance. What do you think drove them to this uh, self-destructive extreme? Was there Were there real economic interests that pushed them? Was it their own political fantasy? Was it a bunch of think tank people with grandiose designs? What, uh, what uh, prompted, for example, the invasion of Iraq? Well, fortunately, they have told us now. In fact, what they've told us is recently is that the uh, what we're called the extremist radical critics were, of course, correct. Uh, it's interesting that nobody's commenting on it. But in last November, uh, a, a declaration was made public. It's called an agreement between the United States and uh, the government of Iraq, which is sort of like an agreement between Germany and Vichy France. Uh, but it is an agreement, and it has uh, uh, very explicit uh, commitments. It says that uh, the United States shall have the right to uh, maintain military forces in Iraq indefinitely. It's called for the security, for preventing aggression against Iraq. Uh, but that's a joke. The only threat of aggression that Iraq faces is from the United States or maybe Israel. Uh, and they're not going to protect them from them. Uh, but what it means is to control Iraq and make sure it remains a client state. It also, a little brazenly, I was kind of surprised by this, uh, it explicitly says that uh, Iraq must be open to foreign investment privileging U.S. investors. I wouldn't have expected them to say that, you know. You're supposed to keep that kind of thing quiet. But it says it, uh, and they mean it. Uh, just uh, about a week ago, uh, uh, Congress uh, passed a, uh, uh, what they call defense budget authorization, or some title like that. Now Bush signed it, but he issued one of his uh, many hundreds of signing statements uh, listing the parts of the legislation that he would not uh, uh, honor. Signed it, but I'm not going to follow, very frank. And that included just what I described uh, and a couple of others. He said you know, he will not uh, adhere to any legislation which restricts uh, U.S. Uh, military uh, forces, bases, operations in Iraq, or which interferes with the commitment that Iraq must uh, privilege American investments. Okay, so that's what the war was about. Yeah, not not unfamiliar to us. I mean, anybody with a gray cell functioning uh, knew that that was true in the first place. I mean, they didn't invade. Uh, if, if Iraq had, uh, if its main uh, export was, say, uh, asparagus and tomatoes, and the main oil reserves in the world were in the South Pacific, uh, the U.S. wouldn't have uh, entered to carried out to liberate Iraq, as they put it. it was, but Iraq happens to have the second largest oil reserves in the world. They're easily accessible, mostly untapped. You don't have to go through tar sands or permafrost. You stick a pipe in the ground. It's right at the heart of the world's major energy-producing area for the next uh, 
generation or so, um, probably estimated that about two-thirds of uh, fossil fuel energy is going to come from the Middle East. Maintaining a client state in Iraq would be of enormous uh, strategic importance. And it's, uh, it's not a matter of access to the oil. I mean, if the U.S. was on uh, solar power, you'd have the same policies. In fact, the same policies were uh, in operation in the 1950s when the U.S. didn't import uh, oil. In fact, it was a major producer. Uh, the point is to control it. Control is different from access. Now, that's been understood by planners since the Second World War. I mean, George Kennan, top planner, when he was uh, in the Truman administration, uh, pointed out that if the U.S. Uh, maintains control over Middle East oil, it will have veto power over others. Uh, he was talking specifically about Japan, but it generalizes. And the same point has been made by the more uh, honest uh, members of the planning circles today. Zbigniew Brzezinski, for example, didn't, was not particularly enthusiastic about the invasion of Iraq. But he did say that if the U.S. succeeds, it will gain what he called uh, critical leverage over its rivals, industrial rivals in Europe, Europe, Japan, elsewhere. Yes, you have your... And in fact, Dick Cheney said pretty much the same thing. Uh, on his way to... He was on his way to Kazakhstan. He pointed out that control over pipelines uh, provides tools of intimidation and blackmail. Yeah, he was talking about control by others. Of course, we're, we just do things for the benefit of the world, uh, but the world doesn't see it that way for some pretty good reasons. What are you making the argument, which is uh, heard increasingly in, in somewhat respectable circles, that uh, the neocons were just doing Israel's bidding? Well, if you look at the actual record, and it's available, actually, the record is presented pretty well in uh, the new recent book by Walton Mearsheimer. Uh, it, the record undermines their thesis, but they do present the record. Uh, the record shows, which we basically knew, that uh, Israel was not particularly interested in an invasion of Iraq. It regarded it as a, it regarded an invasion of Iraq as uh, best irrelevant and perhaps uh, undermining what really concerns them. What they want is an invasion of Iran. I mean, they knew as well as everyone else in, in the Middle East or in the world that uh, horrendous as Saddam Hussein might be, he wasn't a threat to anybody. I mean, even Kuwait, which he had invaded, didn't regard him as a threat. But uh, they hated him, obviously, but not a threat. He's the weakest state in the region, uh, barely held together with scotch tape. Uh, but uh, uh, so an attack on Iraq was of no particular advantage to them. On the other hand, Iran is the one state in the region they can't dominate and control. They want the U.S. to go after them. And this uh, sidetrack into Iraq was not, they were not enthusiastic about it. Now, if you look closely, you'll see that after they realized that the U.S. was going to attack Iraq, which is pretty clear by mid-2002, then they became enthusiastic about it. But that's a natural response of any client state. You follow the, the master. If he's going to do something, you support it. So, so in that case, the, the, the argument works the other way. I mean, there are cases where the, what they call the lobby is influential. I mean, we all know that. Uh, other lobbies are, too. Um, the Armenian lobby, for example, which is a tiny fraction of the Israel lobby, almost uh, created a major crisis between the U.S. and a top ally, Turkey, just a few months ago. Uh, the, uh, but the Israel lobby is uh, you know, it's very well organized. It's... it's uh, is very influential and effective. 
uh, on issues that don't matter much to U.S. power. Uh, so Congress is happy to pass a resolution, uh, you know, almost unanimously every year, uh, saying that the embassy should be put in Jerusalem, uh, knowing that it's not going to happen, but they can, you know, pick up uh, political support and uh, funding and so on. And sometimes it affects policy. But uh, when you look closely, you find, as you would expect, that uh, uh, when when there's a real conflict, if the U.S. really has an interest in something, it just gives Israel orders and they have to back off. And they do, uh, even on matters of extreme importance to, to them. I want to give one example, which you remember a couple of months ago, there was a lot of uh, big flap about Israel apparently bombing some uh, uh, some site in Syria for obscure reasons, which uh, have disappeared from view. Uh, but presumably it happened. And the story at the time was, well, this was a, uh, a nuclear installation being built with the help of North Korea. Uh, why would North Korea be involved with Syria? And could that have been stopped? Yeah, the answer is it could have been stopped if it's happening. And namely in 1993, this is under Clinton, give you an indication of the breadth of policy. Uh, under Clinton in 1993, Israel was close to an agreement with North Korea, uh, which would uh, involve Israel's recognition of North Korea, and in turn, North Korea's uh, commitment to uh, terminate any, action, any uh, operations involving missiles or uh, uh, weapons, especially nu nuclear weapons, uh, with any, anywhere in the Middle East. Well, that arrangement would have been very much uh, uh, very important for Israel's security. But Clinton just nixed it, told them no. Of course, they backed off. Uh, or to take a more recent case, in, uh, under the Bush administration, it must be 2005, I guess, uh, uh, Israel, Israel has a high, uh, its economy is sort of like a character of the United States by now. It's a high-tech, uh, highly militarized economy. And it depends very heavily on exports, which these days means exports to China uh, significantly. And Israel wanted to uh, upgrade uh, uh, missiles that it had sent to China, which would have been a big boost to the Israeli military industry. And they were adamant that they were going to do it, no matter what anyone said. Well, the Bush administration told them no. In fact, it went beyond that, went out of its way to humiliate them. It refused to meet with uh, Israeli officials sent here. It demanded an official apology uh, and a commitment never to do anything like that again, drag them through the mud. And they did it. What choice do they have? Uh, on the other hand, the lobby is influential, especially on matters that don't matter much to the United States. So let's say crushing the Palestinians. I mean, it's more or less a, a matter of indifference to U.S. power. They don't care about the Palestinians one way or another. Uh, so if Israel wants to crush him, fine, we'll support him. On the other hand, you also have to ask the question, just what is the lobby? I mean, the lobby isn't just APAC. Actually, I think Walt and Mearsheimer are accurate in the way they describe the lobby. Uh, they describe it as uh, those uh, individuals, groups, who uh, dedicate themselves to promoting the interests of Israel. Well, you know, it's a good definition. But by that definition, it includes most of the American intellectual class. New York Times isn't pressured by APAC. They just take that position. And in fact, that's been true since 1967, when there was a sharp turn. 
1967, Israel performed a major service to U.S. power. Uh, there was a serious confrontation between uh, Nasser, who was representing secular Arab nationalism, and Saudi Arabia, the U.S. major U.S. ally, where most of the oil is, which is uh, the most extremist, uh, fundamentalist uh, state in the world. And the U.S. was on the side of extremist Islamic fundamentalism, as it typically has been, and against secular nationalism. And it was a serious confrontation. I mean, they were, in fact, Saudi Arabia and Egypt were at war in the Yemen. And there was a real threat to the, uh, the U.S. Western domination, the U.S. mainly domination of, uh, of the energy resources. Well, Israel destroyed Nasser. That was a, that's when the U.S.-Israel alliance really shot off. In fact, it extended radically in, again in 1970 when uh, the Jordanian government was massacring Palestinians, Black September, and it looked for a while as if Syria might intervene to protect Palestinians, which the U.S. was very much opposed to, and, but it couldn't inter the U.S. was tied up at that time in Indochina. It couldn't do anything itself. It was right after the Cambodian intervention and so on. Uh, so they asked Israel to do it, and they did. They, Israel mobilized its uh, uh, air force, and, uh, which is a powerful force, it's, uh, and Syria backed off. And the U.S. aid to Israel, I think, uh, quadrupled. Uh, and so it continues. There is an interesting debate going on now. I mean, Walt and Mearsheimer are good examples, best examples. I mean, they argue that uh, the U.S., they agree that there was a strategic alliance, which made some sense for uh, U.S. power, but they argue that in recent years uh, the, the alliance with Israel has been harmful to what they call the national interest. Well, the term national interest is a an interesting construct. Uh, it's, a, it's a term that's used by what's called real, realist international relations theory. But what does it mean? I mean, does the CEO of General Electric have the same interest as the janitor who cleans his offices? You know, this is an approach to international affairs which almost totally uh, evades the internal domestic structure of power and therefore is at best of some kind of marginal relation, uh, uh, has a marginal relation to how decisions are made. But let's say Israel's the alliance is harmful to the national interest. Well, if you believe that, uh, there is a, a, a tactical consequence that follows. It follows that, uh, say, people like me should stop uh, wasting time doing what I'm doing now, let's say, talking about the problem, or giving talks and uh, you know, writing articles and books, a total waste of time. Uh, what I should do is put on my tie and jacket, go to the corporate headquarters of uh, Lockheed Martin, uh, uh, Intel, uh, Morgan Stanley, uh, ExxonMobil, and so on, and patiently explain to them uh, that their interests are being harmed by a lobbying group uh, that they can put out of business in uh, five minutes with their political clout and uh, economic power. Well, nobody does that, but that's just a way of saying that you can't. nobody's taking seriously the idea that, it, uh, that the alliance conflicts with the national interest. I mean, Intel knows perfectly well what it's doing when it invests in Israel. Let's uh, turn to uh, diagnosing the state of uh, American power now. It does look weakened. The economy is in trouble, uh, facing a possibly uh, serious recession with pretty deep foreign debts. The U.S. prestige is uh, at uh, 
uh, the lowest it's been in, in many, many decades. The uh, army is very stretched by uh, the adventure in Iraq. Uh, it's not looking too good for American power right now. And certainly, you said, talked about the uh, the imperial crisis at the uh, at the beginning of this interview. Is this something the U.S. can get out of, or is this really a, a beginning of a long decline? Well, there are people who think of it as a long decline. You know, that Asia is going to take over, or something like that. I'm personally skeptical. What you mentioned is quite right, and it's to a significant extent uh, the result of the extremist Bush policies. But I presume that whoever the next president is, maybe even McCain, will move policy back towards the you know, the normal centrist spectrum, which is not that different in principle from the Bush policy, but is a less brazen, arrogant, uh, you know, ignorant, uh, offensive, and so on. And that makes a difference. And the U.S. Is, remains the richest, most powerful country, not only in the world, but in the history of the world. It has enormous advantages, huge internal market, plenty of resources. Uh, has uh, Its military spending now exceeds that the rest of the world combined. It has unparalleled security. It, it, it would take a real Bush-style stupidity over a long period to seriously harm the U.S. position of power in the world. So I suspect it can reconstruct. Well, a lot of people are looking to a Democratic administration, which seems like uh, more likely than not, although God knows what could happen in the next several months, to uh, really uh, reverse the fundamental thrust of, of American foreign policy. I think a lot of people have uh, perhaps uh, excessively naive hopes about what a Democratic president might do uh, to alter Bush policy. But what, uh, if anything, do you see them changing should uh, either uh, Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama take power on January 20th next year? I think the U.S. stance in the world will be less abrasive, uh, offensive, uh, insulting. Uh, They won't go out of the way to kick people in the face, which is just a dumb thing to do. Uh, Actually, Madeleine Albright made this point uh, in an article in Foreign Affairs after the Bush Doctrine was uh, released. She was Clinton's Secretary of State. And she said, look, she criticized the Bush doctrine, but she added that every president has a doctrine like this in his back pocket. And she knew perfectly well that Clinton did, as I just mentioned. Uh, But uh, you don't wave it in people's faces in a way which is just going to arouse antagonism and fear and hatred. You do it quietly, and you achieve what you need quietly. And I suspect in international affairs that will be the case pursue the same policies in essentially in principle, but with tactical modifications and in a different style. Uh, as for domestic policies, there could be some differences. The Bush administration is extreme in its uh, commitment to enriching the rich and powerful and uh, kicking everyone else in the face. Uh, the Democrats will be less extreme in that respect. They have a different constituency. So I suspect it will go back to... Uh, what has been the norm under democratic administrations, most recently Clinton, but in fact all the way back. Uh, there, there, there are differences, like say the Johnson administration. At that time, the Johnson administration really pushed through uh, significant uh, sort of social democratic welfare state measures, like what the limited medical care system that we have from the Johnson administration and others. And that was under tremendous popular pressure, remember. Those were the days of extensive uh, popular organizing. And if that increases, uh, it would mean that a democratic administration would be 
more likely to respond to it than a Republican administration. However, it's very hard to predict that. Like take, say, Nixon. His domestic policies were some of the most liberal policies of recent decades because the pressure was there. You also have to wonder if a guy whose middle name is Hussein would have to prove himself uh, to the security establishment. And uh, uh, a woman would also have to prove herself. In fact, we can see that in the campaign rhetoric. So it's entirely possible that uh, a Democratic president might turn out to be more militant. It's happened before. Take John F. Kennedy, who's their ideal. He was, he practically drove the world to total disaster uh, with his behavior in the missile crisis. Highly honored, but if you look at the details, it was appalling. Uh, He initiated a major terrorist war against Cuba. Didn't initiate it, it was started by Eisenhower, but he radically escalated it. Uh, He he changed U.S. policy towards Latin America in a fundamental way. In 1962, the Kennedy administration shifted the mission of the Latin American military, which it more or less controls, from hemispheric defense to internal security. It started under Eisenhower, but it was consummated under Kennedy. Well, hemispheric defense was kind of a joke left over from the Second World War. But internal security is no joke. That means a war against the population. And Kennedy went ahead and implemented it. The same year, 1962, he sent a special forces group to Columbia, headed by a Green Beret general, which uh, uh, had a very violent history, violent activities going on at the time. And the Yarbrough's group recommended to the Colombian military that they resort to paramilitary terror against uh, what were called known communist adherents. In the terminology of counterinsurgency, that means uh, priests organizing peasants, uh, union activists, uh, human rights workers, and so on. And it changed. Colombia is pretty violent, has been quite violent for a long time, but that radically increased the level of uh, terror and violence, and it remains the worst in the hemisphere until today. Also, the leading recipient of U.S. military aid in the hemisphere, typical correlation. Uh, Kennedy also uh, inspired, uh, began the organization of the uh, Brazilian uh, military coup that took place right after the assassination. That was the first uh, neo-Nazi-style uh, national security state in Latin America, and that headed off a, started off a plague that spread through the regions worst uh, repression of Latin America's history. And so it goes on. I mean, Yeah, I was a little nervous when Carolyn Kennedy's uh, endorsement editorial appeared in the New York Times under the title of President Like My Father. That doesn't seem like a very reassuring thing to me. No, not if you look at the actual record. I mean, the Kennedy administration had one brilliant insight. They knew that if you're nice to intellectuals, you pat them on the head and you pretend to take them seriously, you're going to have a good image. And that's what happened. So there is a Camelot image. But if you look at the reality, it's not very pretty. And then finally, let's, uh, what do you make of the rise of China? Is it a plausible rival to U.S. political and economic power of the longer term, or is it uh, going to stay safely subordinate? China's clearly a rising power, and it's, uh, it has a 3,000-year tradition of uh, unwillingness to submit to the barbarians. Uh, the tradition was broken for over a century when uh, Britain entered with gunboats and turned them into a nation of addicts with the biggest narco-trafficking enterprise in the world. And then others went in and it was the century of humiliation. But they've risen from it. And they're moving back to, trying to move back to what they were in the 17th century, 
18th century, uh, the commercial and industrial centers of the world were China and India, crushed by imperialism. But uh, they're sort of moving back, but it's a long way to go. China, the last time I looked, ranked about uh, 75th or so in the, uh, the uh, human development uh, indices. I think India is around 125. Uh, they have enormous internal problems. It, they may turn out to have a uh, you know, an economy which sort of, by some measures, purchasing power parity maybe will match the U.S., but you know, over a billion people and huge internal problems, uh, massive poverty, enormous inequality, tremendous ecological problems, uh, problems of resource access, uh, destroying what there is of agricultural land, and all that much, uh, tremendous problems to overcome. On the other hand, they do compete. I mean, unlike Europe, they don't accept U.S. intimidation. That's the threat. When the U.S. takes a Iran, uh, when the U.S. shakes its fist and tells countries don't invest in Iran, the Europeans quietly back off. I mean, they may make uh, undercover deals through Dubai or something, but they basically back off. China just ignores it, goes straight ahead, does what it wants. And that's terrifying. The international system is more like the mafia than people generally recognize. For the godfather, it's a real threat if someone stops paying his protection money. For one thing, it's frightening enough in itself, but it can also spread to others. And it is spreading. China is at the center of a major organization, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which includes Russia, it includes the Central Asian states. Uh, it uh, includes Mongolia. Uh, India is an observer. Uh, Iran is an observer. Uh, it's, it's, that means a very resource-rich area. Uh, the United States applied to try to become an observer, but it was rebuffed. Uh, they've uh, declared that they want U.S. forces out of Central Asia. Uh, it's it's an emerging bloc uh, with uh, China, Russia. Iran start bringing in the Middle East oil resources. Uh, China, meanwhile, is uh, increasing investments in Saudi Arabia, trade with Saudi Arabia, which is the kind of jewel in the crown. Uh, those are doing the same in Latin America. It's nowhere near the scale of the U.S. and Europe, but it's increasing. Same in Africa. And those are what are called threats. It's not a military threat, but it is a threat of insubordination, uh, which is not insubstantial. All right. Thanks very much.